Hello, everyone, and welcome to Professor Kozlowski's first ever non-class-related podcast. Yes, this is it, folks. Uh, I don't see any reason why this will ever be uploaded to some class that I am teaching. Um, this one is just for you folks out in internet land who listen to me, not because I assign it to you. Um, kudos to you. Uh, and man, do we have a doozy for today, um, and, and next week for that matter, because this one's going to take at least two sessions to talk about. Um, so my man Wes Chance, who I gave a shout out to last time, um, as I should have expected, he had a good question locked and loaded, ready to go, and he was eager to hear me sort of um, expostulate on this particular subject. So, if I may be permitted, uh, the question he sent me in his original language, um, he said, here's what I would like you to see you take on. No more beating around the bush. Do a podcast on philosophy and religion in U.S. politics. At the founding, with the Enlightenment view of human nature as self-interest grafted onto a religious revivalism. At present, with what's going on with the election and Supreme Court shenanigans while the world utterly gasps out for temporal and spiritual leadership. What, if any, discernible philosophical framework does our country rest upon? Is it in any way defensible today? And like I said, this is a doozy of a question. Um, so I am initially planning to take this on in two sessions, but I will honestly not be shocked if I end up deciding later that, to go over into three. Um, because again, there's a lot here. Um, so to start, today we're going to focus on the first half of this question, the sort of what are the principles on which this country was founded upon. Um, specifically that idea that he's sort of pointing to here, the Enlightenment era um, view of human nature sort of paired with this religious revivalism, um, the, the first and second great awakening uh, like kicked off by Jonathan Edwards and other folks like that. Um, but even this, like, alone would be more than enough material for, you know, a, an entire class worth of discussion, um, like an entire semester at a, like, legit college course, much less, you know, me trying to discuss it in one day. But we're gonna try anyway, because when have I ever done things the smart and patient way? Um, but I want to sort of, like, describe the parameters of what we're dealing with here before we, before we jump in. Um, obviously, like, I'm literally recording this on election day, partially because my intention was to record these a little early, but then I had some health problems and some other stuff, so rather than two weeks of hiatus, I kind of ended up taking three or four. Um, but most importantly, like, I was literally just talking to my students about this yesterday. I sort of just sat down and had the conversation. Um, our country sucks right now. Like, not even gonna try and dress that up or, you know, pretend that it's not the case. Um, like, earlier this week I was literally sitting in church and Pastor was mentioning that, you know, despite all that's going on, we still live in the greatest country in the world, and three rows ahead of me, uh, one of our, one of our con uh, congregants was just quietly shaking his head. Like, everybody has to acknowledge that America is in crisis at this moment in time. Um, and I mean, like, even on both sides of the aisle, this is what I was emphasizing to my students yesterday, like, the election this year between Donald Trump and Joe Biden 
is very much perceived on both sides to be an existential threat to America itself. Um, Republicans believe that Joe Biden represents the shadowy cadre of, you know, pedophiles who are, have taken over the mainstream media and are trying to impose communism um, instead of democracy on our nation. Which admittedly, a lot of that is QAnon nonsense, but wherever you fall on the conservative spectrum at this point, you see Joe Biden as a threat. Um, you see him as promoting abortion and therefore the holocaust of babies that uh, Dr. Kraft would used to talk about. Um, you see him as a communist or a socialist. Uh, the way that like Bernie Sanders picked up so much speed over the primaries, many conservatives see that as a serious threat to American values. Um, that the socialism or communism that they that they represent is you know in a sheer destruction. Um, and some of that, I think, is misinterpretation, like they look at, you know, structures like Stalinism or, you know, the National Socialism of Hitler, and they're sort of conflating that with the socialism that we can see today in, say, Canada or the UK, um, which seem to be pretty productive and can be motivated by democracy. They're not incompatible. Um, here I am apologizing for Bernie Sanders. Um, but nonetheless, like, whatever even though that there is this complex relationship of sort of conservative rhetoric and the, you know, ugly, like, hard right, um, just indoctrination that's going on online and with, like, conservative talk radio and, you know, like, Tucker Carlson and, and the, the scarier side of, like, the news companies, like, going as far as uh, Breitbart and OAN and just crazy stuff, um, the conspiracy theories on the hard right, like... There's a lot of this going around, and the, the constant refrain is America is under attack. Um, Joe Biden represents just these people who want to destroy the America that we know and love. Um, and on the left, it's the same conversation, though the, par the particulars are different. Um, they see Donald Trump as a threat to everything they represent. And this one, I tend to think, is slightly better grounded, which will undoubtedly reveal my biases, but we might as well talk about them, too, if we're going to go into this whole conversation about American politics. Um, Donald Trump has repeatedly tried to snow the system. He has repeatedly obstructed justice in attempting to defend his activities. Um, he seems to have zero regard for the democratic process. Um, much less the business of politics, which basically boils down to compromise and careful rule. Um, Donald Trump, many on the left uh, would say, is a fascist. Um, so on the, le on the left, you see Donald Trump is a threat. We need to get him out of office or we will devolve into fascism. On the right, you see Joe Biden is a communist. And if he gets into office, he will destroy American democracy. Um, and again, I think a lot of the reason why we are so polarized has a lot to do with the media, with the internet, and the whole, like, bubble echo chamber thing that is sort of transpired, what with Facebook and other social media platforms kind of, like, giving us the, the opportunity and the ability to limit what we hear and what we see. Um, it's, it's sort of become um, a... a place where radicalism thrives. 
Um, like, if you are hanging out with a bunch of people on the left, they will gradually drag you further and further left, as they are themselves being dragged further and further left. And the more and more you sort of cut off contact with the people who disagree with you for whatever grounds, because they are racist in your eyes, or because they are sexist or homophobic or intolerant or fascists, at the end of the day, you end up listening more and more to people who are, you know, bringing you closer and closer to this radical left mindset, this idea that um, democracy should be replaced with socialism, or not replaced, democracy should be buttressed, I guess, with socialism. Um, and our focus should entirely be on getting the government to provide for our needs. Um, whereas on the right, it's the same thing. The more and more you listen to people who agree with you, the more they pull you into this sort of Trump nexus of like alternate reality where whatever Trump says goes and there's this series of conspiracy theories um, sort of poised to destroy uh, our country's values and ideals. Um, and, you know, I think that this is at least in part motivated or at least allowed by the sort of structure that um, the founders had in place. Like, I think that this is a relevant question that Wes is posing. What are the philosophical ideas that our country is based on? Um, but I also think, and this will probably become obvious as we go along, um, that this has a lot more to do with contemporary sort of issues and patterns of thought and the sort of drift of how our nation and its sort of discourse works, rather than being something that's sort of like been in the engine from the beginning. Um, but like I said, we'll get to that. And at this point, I'm not even sure I have like a confident solution, um, which should bring us to our second point for today. Some caveats. Um, mo first and most importantly, this is not my area of expertise. And I want to stress that from the outset. Like. I am absolutely a scholar in philosophy, and I definitely have spent a lot of time studying Enlightenment philosophy, um, and I, you know, have spent a decent amount of time studying religious history, though I have not actually made it, like, to the point of, you know, studying and researching especially 18th century American history um, and sort of how the church plays into that. I've done a little bit of research for, for this lecture, but for the most part, like, I would not consider myself an expert at all. Um, so all that to say, like, this is a really complex question and it, like, connects to a lot of different disciplines, many of which I have only, like, a foot in the door at best. Um, I, I mean, obviously that isn't stopping me. Like, here I am talking about it. Um, and the reason why I am is because I think, like, even if my knowledge isn't sufficient to answer this question, I think my perspective is valuable nonetheless. Um... But I tend to think that about anything. Like, you could ask me about something that I'm completely unknowledgeable about, um, and I would still potentially provide you with an opinion because I think that my perspective might be interesting. Like, you know, Socrates doesn't ask questions of his interlocutors because he thinks that they have answers. He asks questions because only through asking questions, only through talking about this stuff, do we come to answers. Um, and I, I really, like, I, I hold to that, personally. Um, like, this isn't necessarily me teaching you so much as me trying to work through just all of this mess, which, you know, we have to do. 
like we have to sort of take in this giant messed up ugly situation this this election with all of its bile and all of its hatred and all of its you know frustration and the potential fear and the threats that we are facing um and we have to do something with it like we have to comprehend it we have to wrap our brains around it somewhere or somehow even though it is this incredibly complicated thing um, so here's my two cents. Like, that's probably all it's worth at the end of the day, but here it is. Um, but that should also sort of give you an idea of the framing in which I'm going to be sort of posing this, this answer, this conversation. Um, I'm going to approach this like a philosopher, but also like a historian of philosophy. Like, that's the direction that my mind went. Um, I want to talk about sort of how the idea for America became real. Um, not so much the, the actual practicalities, like I'm not going to talk about the Revolutionary War and, or how the actual fight happened all that much. Um, like we'll touch on it for sure. Um, but primarily I want to talk about like the lineage of this idea, where it comes from, modern philosophy, enlightenment philosophy, the, the sort of intermixing of classical ideas because these guys were so classically educated. Um, that I think is the key to understanding what America is all about. Um, from its inception, from its origins. Um, and again, like, that doesn't mean that I'm 100% knowledgeable or even right. Um, I have not even read the Federalist Papers, which I think would is like a huge omission um, for in, embarking on a project like this. But I also, you know, don't have a whole heck of a lot of time in my schedule um, like so much grading these days, as well as just all the craziness going on in the world and everything else um i don't have the time to do a whole heck of a lot of research this is very off the cuff um and already i feel like i'm late you know doing this on election day is not especially productive presumably at this point you've already cast your vote um and by the time this actually gets online i'm pretty sure even the polls will be closed um no matter where you are uh so let's just sort of recognize that i am not an authority on this subject i am just sort of like casting my ideas into the ring um like have a little patience with me i will be wrong um and that's one of the things that i want to stress here like i've had a lot of conversations um about the sort of intertwining of american philosophy and religion and sort of like what the original ideas were and where sort of we've come to from there um i've discussed that a lot with one of my friends uh who i went to i went to boston college with and you know we've kept up a really healthy correspondence since uh, like i play video games with him online and we, we hang out quite a bit um insofar as it is possible in these troubled times um and he is always quick to point out how wrong I am about, like, American history and American politics and, like, all of this mess. Um, and he will, if he ever listens to this, he will know who he is and he will absolutely probably hate every minute of this lecture. Um, that's fine. I, I, have, I think I've learned enough from him at this point to know where he would disagree with me. Um, and this, the single most important thing that I know that he would be upset about is my attitude, my take, um, like my starting point. Um, I'm going to be approaching the history of American thought, like the, the idea of America, from a fairly optimistic perspective, a fairly traditional understanding. Like, I am going to very much embrace the American myth, so to speak. Um, and he would th see that as a huge failing. 
Um, he sees America as being founded by by basically profiteers. Um, that all of those you know very celebrated white dudes in American history, the George Washingtons and the Ben Franklins and the Thomas Jeffersons and the James Madisons and the John Adamses and naturally the Alexander Hamiltons, um, they were all self-seeking, you know, upper middle class white dudes who were being, you know, oppressed in very ironic quotes um, by authority figures who were very close in power to them. The whole giant American revolution celebrated and, and as exciting as it may be, um, really didn't shift the power much. Um, if I can be permitted an Orwellian comparison, this is just the middle, the upper middle class seizing power from the high class, switching roles for a little while, presumably to be changed again in the future. Um, this is about preserving power and wealth, in short. Um, and he's got plenty of arguments to back up that story of where America comes from. Um, he has argued consistently to me that, like, uh, all of these famous white founders were, for the most part, you know, slave owners, or at least not committed to the abolitionist cause. And there are exceptions, for sure, um, but not as many as you would want. And that's why you get things like the three-fifths compromise in the Constitution, counting black people as, you know, three-fifths of a human being. Because that's ugly. Um, he's the one who quickly points out that the Second Amendment is rooted um, in slave-owning practices, that that whole, you know, right to create a militia is actually the militias that would hunt down escaped slaves in the Deep South and elsewhere. Um, so, you know, our gun ownership legislation has always been rooted in, in slave-owning, you know, white people protecting white people's interests and, and ideas. Um, sort of attitude. And, you know, there's certainly merit to that argument, for sure. Um, like, I, I don't want to pretend that our our history is rooted in anything but, you know, selfishness and, and greed and people protecting their own power and their own wealth and sort of like perpetuating utterly unjust systems. Um, like I stressed, it's all over the, the Constitution. You know, only landowners can vote. Only white men can vote. Only, um, you know, the, the power structures in place are, are designed to benefit those who are making them. That's, that's almost always how it works. Um, but to sort of counter that, like, I, I don't want to reject that, that perspective perspective, that position, or anything. Um, but the reason why I want to sort of take a pro-American myth approach to, to answering this question rather than sort of fiddling about in the, the economics and the classism and the other sort of ugly behavior um, is because I think the myth is the best version of America. And, you know, it is, it is my practice in all of my philosophical exploits um, to sort of give the best take on both sides, um, to give the best version of the argument against America and the best version of the argument for. Um, and in this particular case, you know, the question like what are the philosophical principles that America is based on is the kind of question that, that we have to, you know, we have to look at from an optimistic perspective. Yes, it is rooted in greed and it is rooted in, you know, self-preservation and it is rooted in white dudes protecting their power systems. Um, but at the same time, like 
the language being employed here isn't that of slave owners protecting slave ownership. It's the language of free people protecting freedom. Um, like, people have fought and died over these principles, and if they are just flowery words, then it's basically a giant, you know, absurd, like, farce that has been taking place. This gallows joke um, where, you know, the these suckers believe in this myth year after year after year, like, sacrifice everything that they have, everything that they are, everything that they believe um, for this myth, and just so, you know, rich people can keep being rich. Like, that may be true in some sense, but it's certainly not the version of America that we, that we protect and treasure. Um, those who are fighting and dying see America differently. And to ignore what they see it would be equally destructive and equally blind, I think. Um, so we're going to approach this from the pro-myth perspective. We're going to see this as an American myth that has sort of been built through all of this hardship, through all of these different like confluences of ideas. Um, and then I will take the assumption that it is something worthwhile until, you know, we can't anymore. Like, I'll be quick to point out where it falls apart, like where it doesn't make sense, where it is self-contradictory or, or hypocritical or whatever the case may be. Um, and I definitely want to address, like, the failings and, and you know, the, the places where it just doesn't work anymore. Um, but I also want to recognize its potential. Um, this was an idealistic age. Um, this whole period of history that we're going to be talking about today from the 17th to the 18th century is defined um, by men who thought that they could beat the system. Um, and these, they may not have even seen correctly what the system was, but they thought that they could beat it all the same. They thought that they could, you know, make the world a better place. Um, and if we don't buy that, if we don't think that's possible, um, then we're kind of stuck. Like, there's nowhere to go at this point. Um, the fact of the matter is, you know, no, no words of any human being have survived to this day unless they were at least somewhat in league with the power structures and greed of the time. Um, that's the way these things work. But if we, you know, basically say, well, forget it then, it's all greed, it's all selfishness, then there's nowhere to go from here. Like, there, there's no hope. Um, America is, in its sort of, like, foundational way, a story of hope. Um, and the philosophy that it represents has hope as its sort of, like, center point. Um, otherwise, it would have just been this mad, idiotic, pointless, sort of, like, circling the drain. Um, which you could argue it is. It's, you know, several hundred years later and here we are circling the drain. We're asking these questions again, and rightfully so. Um, but let's, at the very least, give the founders, the, the sort of American people, the generations, the benefit of the doubt until we, we can't see otherwise. Um, so with that, those caveats out of the way, now that we're, like, well past 20 minutes into this lecture let's actually do the lecture part let's talk about the the sort of philosophical factors um that brought america into existence and the first one that i definitely want to talk about not necessarily because it's in chronological order but it is kind of the logical starting point or at least the starting point of like that i can see and that what 
about what I know, um, is 17th century British politics. Yep, we're going to talk about some kings and queens and successions and also quite a few beheadings. Um, the reason why I want to start with this is because this is kind of... This is simultaneously the period that we identify as our origin story. Like, this is the period when all of those Puritans with their belt buckles on their hats start, you know, sailing over to American shores. Um, but also because this is philosophically the period that really defined the, the political philosophy that is going to shape what America becomes. Um, so for those of you who haven't studied 17th century British politics, which for all intents and purposes should include me, it's kind of dumb luck that my wife and I read a book together um, specifically on this subject. Um, so the 17th century is weird um, in British history for a variety of reasons. Uh, keep in mind that this is like the end of the Renaissance for one thing. So we're talking about like starting with Shakespeare um, and this itself, as I've discussed in my other lectures, is this huge change, this sea change in the way that philosophy works, the way that people think on this grand scale. Um, we had gone from literally centuries of rule under the Catholic Church, them calling the shots, um, to now there's this this sort of urge towards humanism, this, this human-centered philosophy. Um, and this manifests not just in you know, in actual philosophy, but in sort of like, in the the way that science is sort of spreading and growing and becoming more and more of a force separate from the church um, and philosophical circles generally. Um, this is manifested in the new ways that art is changing, like moving towards representational realism as much as possible. Like we are in the heart of the Baroque period right now. Um, and they're and like on all sides in Europe, like whether you take the Catholic centric florid Baroque or the Protestant centered restrained Baroque, um, there's very much this emphasis towards activity and de depicting human beings in motion and depicting them realistically. Um, this is the time of the Night Watch. This is the time of the Dutch Masters. Um, weirdly, the British don't have a whole heck of a lot of artists to show at this point in time. They imported all of theirs. Um, the relationship between Britain and, and Amsterdam, like the Netherlands, is a tricksy one um, at this point in time. But the main thing that causes this to be sort of my, my point of origin rather than the Renaissance generally um, is because there was this really major shift in perspective in British politics at this point. Um, we were coming out of the Thirty Years' War, the giant war between the Catholics and the Protestants that like devastates the Holy Roman Empire and most of Europe at this point. Um, and... England and, you know, Great Britain in general, which at this point is still, like, the part that is south of Scotland and a decent amount of control over Ireland, but it's, it's tricksy. Like, the diplomacy between England and Scotland and Ireland is, is very, very tenuous um, under Queen Elizabeth at the end of her reign. Uh, she manages to hold it together. Like, she was an incredible woman, held it together by pure force of will, it seems, at some times. Um, but then she died um, and left no heirs. Like, the House of Tudor was done. Um, and as a consequence, uh, rule passed to the guy who was actually, at the time, ruling Scotland. Um, their James VI became Great Britain's James I. Um, and this, like, freaked everyone out. 
Like, this is basically equivalent to the Prime Minister of Canada being elected king of, or being elected president. Um, you have a, you know, decent relationship with the Scots at this point in time, but the idea that a Scottish king is going to rule England, nope, nuh-uh, not going to have that shit, nope, that's bad news. Um, so this is a huge political slap in the face. Um, to a lot of the British systems in place at this point. Like a lot of men and women who thrived under Elizabeth are going to suffer under James, and a lot of people overlooked by Elizabeth are going to be adopted and promoted under James and the Stuart dynasty. Um, but this huge sea change means unrest in a country that is already suffering from a lot of unrest. Like I said, you know, uh, Britain had very much sort of camped its or staked its claim in Protestantism against the Catholics. You know, King Henry VIII, generations before at this point, had decided, you know, we are not going to be Catholic because I need my divorce. Um, so he founds his own church, Anglicanism, and now you've got all of these Protestants hanging around England. Um, but it's not just Anglicans. Um, England is very much rife with religious dissension in various ways. Um, Scotland at this point is primarily Catholic. That's part of the reason why everyone's freaking out about James I is they expect him to be pro-Catholic. Um, which makes it all the more ironic and weird that like the one of the primary English biblical translation um, that sort of spawned all the others is the King James Version, which was very much written under James I, the famously Catholic uh, king. Like, everybody is all excited about the King James edition as, like, the foundation of Protestantism, and, you know, people trust their King James, um, like, weirdly, unnecessarily... Um, but, you know, yeah, he was, he was kind of largely perceived to be a Catholic at this point. Whether right or wrong, that's another matter. It seems more that he was kind of, like, accused of leaning that way without any real justification, but there you are. At any rate, King James I is accused of being Catholic, and a lot of the mainline Protestants, like the Anglicans, aren't terribly concerned about this, like, they, they seem to be, you know, entrenched enough at this point to be comfortable with it, and Anglicanism is looking a lot more like Catholicism than many of the other um, sort of newish Protestant sects, like the Puritans, like the Anabaptists, like the Quakers, um, who are hanging around in England at this point in time. But it's those little guys, the Puritans, the, the Quakers, the, the you know, um, sort of quasi-proto-Presbyterians, um, they're the ones who are upset and concerned that they're going to get religious persecution. Um, and to some degree, that is in fact happening, though it is kind of trumped up in the 17th century. Um, consistently throughout this period, England is very much divided because of religion. Um, the typical English citizen who, you know, follows Anglicanism isn't overly troubled by you know, major Catholic King James coming in and ruling the place. Um, but they, but it's very much on a spectrum with like these sort of like reactionary or wildly, you know, aggressive Protestant sects like the Puritans being worried because they're like trying to do their own thing, practice their own religious practices. Um, and, increasingly the word from the higher-ups is to clamp down on them 
um, to not let, you know, the Puritans, the Quakers, the, the non-Anglican Protestants uh, to conduct business the way that they want to. Um, and this is to some degree also like a rural urban divide. Like there's a lot of, a lot of complexity here, like stuff that I neither have the knowledge nor the time to really get into. Um, suffice it to say that there's a lot of frustration, a lot of unrest. Um, the king is sort of trying to clamp down on these sort of splintered Protestant sects and they are, the splintered Protestant sects are pushing back against the king, um, Increasingly, this becomes a division between the king, like James I and the Stuart dynasty and his successor, Charles I, and then parliament. Parliament becomes the voice of the people, the voice of, you know, especially these wild little offshoot Protestant sects. Um, and by the middle of the 17th century, this breaks out into like legit all out war, like a civil war in Britain between the parliament and the king as well as the parliamentary supporters and the king's supporters. Like, literally everybody just musters up, takes sides, and starts killing each other. Um, to the point that, like, Parliament actually wins, and they capture Charles I, and they're like, well, now what do we do? Um, and they execute him. Like, they execute their own king for treason. It is probably the single most audacious, like moment in British history ever and Parliament is sitting around like oh god what have we done and then Oliver Cromwell of course shows up and he's like here let me take over and he does for like 10 years Cromwell rules everything and everyone is just baffled at how we have come to this point um like he is one part tyrant and one part revolutionary and one part liberator he's a fascinating character um, and eventually they like get rid of him and they try and restore the, the Stuart dynasty. So they bring in, you know, Charles II and they like disinter the body of Cromwell and like decapitate it post-mortem to, to prove how upset they are. This is weirdly common in the 17th century. Like it's crazy stuff. Um, but the reason why I want to stress all this is because out of this unrest, out of this disagreement, you get some really interesting philosophy um, because it's increasingly clear to the Brits at this point in time that kingship isn't what it used to be. Like this is literally the same time as Louis XIV is, you know, doing absolute rule in France. You know, I am the, the state. Um, he is, you know, sort of aggregating all power to himself, like tyrannically ruling over the church, ruling over the, the peasants, ruling over, you know, the rest of the of the nobles. Like he relocates the capital to Versailles and everybody has to like go along with it or, you know, not get a voice in, in rule. Um, at the same time as King Louis XIV is like turning France into his own personal playground, you've got Britain executing their own king on the grounds of treason. And then later when James II is ruling, they just like oust him in the middle of the night. They're like, go, we don't want you anymore. And then they just bring in this outsider, William of Orange. Surprise, you're king now. Like it's nuts. It's positively nuts. Um, the sort of changes that are taking place here. Um, but the emphasis in philosophy at this point in time in England 
um, is that kingship is not grounded in some sort of divinely issued authority. Um, the divine right of kings was this principle that supported kings for, at this point, practically a millennia. Um, the church had very much suggested, like way back in its, in its history, like under the Romans, um, that God put emperors and kings in power for a reason. Um, and therefore you are supposed to obey them because God has final say. Um, but the Brits, like, if you're going to execute your own king, obviously, you know, you're not convinced that you will be damned for getting rid of God's representative on earth. Um, so part of that is a result of this change in philosophy. Part of this inspires this change in philosophy. Um, so on the one hand, you've got guys like Hobbes who are writing at the beginning of this period uh, and who are sort of suggesting this new way of looking at the way that like political philosophy works, no longer invested in this where does power get inherited from, um, i.e. God and Christianity, but Hobbes's view is much more sort of, you could call it naturalistic or you could call it pessimistic. Either one would probably work. Hobbes's take is that we are all basically like every single human being, every individual is looking for an opportunity to stab each other in the back. And that the only reason we want government around is to prevent us from getting stabbed in the back. Like we, the state of nature, according to Hobbes, is a violent, ugly one like filled with competition and rivalry and violence. And the only way that we can overcome this is by like tentatively getting together to build government. Um, and government will, Hobbes stresses, just become a tool of this sort of motion. Like once again, it's just gonna be selfish people like trying to get one over on other selfish people. Um, that's just how government works as far as, as, far as Hobbes is concerned. Um, we also get like, probably the single most important thinker um, in this this discussion of where uh, the idea of America comes from. We get John Locke um, through this tumult and turmoil. Um, like, we on, in the in philosophical circles tend to be a big fan of his inquiry concerning human understanding because of the metaphysics and because he that's where he stresses his tabula rasa idea. Um, this This idea that, like, all humans are fundamentally blank slates that we have no predisposition towards good or evil but it's sort of like inscribed on us as we go that is foundational to what america is but i think more important is john locke's attitude towards government what he writes in his two treatises of government um and he literally writes the two treatises of government as sort of like this retroactive justification for kicking out james ii and bringing in william of orange instead um like, he's basically saying, yeah, we were right to do that. Why were we right? Well, here are all the reasons. Like, never mind the fact that they weren't put on paper beforehand, that nobody basically decided this, that it was basically a bunch of nobles once again uh, protecting their power and sort of, like, you know, trying to sustain their power structures against the power structures that they perceived were against them. Um, instead, he's sort of saying, no, the the... The source of governmental power is not in, again, this divine right of kings, this divine lineage, but rather in the people themselves. The people willfully give power to a sovereign to prevent them from being chaotic, to prevent them from, you know, suffering under injustice, uh, to basically prevent other people stealing their shit. 
Um, since I have land, since I have goods, since I have property, I want to protect my property while also trying to get as much property of other people. You can see the, the Hobbesian attitude here. Um, but where Hobbes is like, government is just a tool of powerful people like to break us, Locke is more of the opinion that government is like the only way that we can get out of this system. If we all just sort of shake hands and agree um, that we're not going to steal each other's stuff in order to protect our own stuff, and then we appoint someone, some king, some leader, um, to sort of like make sure that we're, we all keep our word, that nobody is going around stealing stuff, that's government in short. Um, and I'm sort of like offhanded about this because this should come as no shock to any of us who live in America. Like this, this is so fundamental, so rudimentary to who we are that like we don't even give it a second thought. Well, of course, power comes from the people. Of course, rulership should be decided by the people. This is radically different in Locke's day. Like, remember, you know, this is the same time that Louis XIV is running around saying that God made me king, therefore I do what I want. Um, this is fairly unprecedented. Um, and... Locke is basically suggesting when he says that power comes from the people that we can do what we want with our kings, with our institutions, with our power, and good power well apportioned reflects that. It acknowledges the fact that human beings, like the public, the populace, they are, at the end of the day, the reason why government exists and the agents that allow government to exist. Um, and it makes sense that Locke would see it this way. Like, you know, again, the whole 17th century British history is just story after story of the people or other institutions deciding what the monarchy is going to look like. The king is no longer the biggest name in town. It's very obvious that the king rules only because his nobles and because the people and because the military and because all of these other forces allow him to rule. Any one of those forces can change their mind. Like, part of the reason why Oliver Cromwell becomes, you know, the quasi-king of Britain is because the military at this point is running through London and no one can say anything against them and Cromwell just happens to be running the military at this point. They trust him. So they basically make him king. Um, the fact that Parliament can stand up to the king and decide to execute him is an indication that the people, or the nobles at the very least, actually call the shots. Um, there is no, nothing sacred, nothing inviolable, inviolable about being king. Um, so Locke emphasizes that. And obviously this is an idea that's very much going to permeate the American spirit, the American philosophy. So... This is the sort of 17th century idea, and it's especially important for us to remember that this, this kind of thinking, this awareness of persecution, these ideas are primarily the ones trickling down to the same exact religious, religiously persecuted folks who are taking off for American shores initially in the first place. Um, the reason why the Puritans leave, the reason why they think that they are being religiously persecuted is because they see that the king is unjustly wielding their power. Um, America is founded by dissenters, in short. And it doesn't get any better in the 18th century when, you know, England starts using America as a penal colony and, like, all these prisoners are going over there. Um, people are leaving England 
and going to America specifically because they are tired of the power structures that are in place. Um, and admittedly, they're not the only voice in this conversation. Like, obviously, you've got the French Huguenots also coming into American shores. You've got the Dutch settlers, you know, founding New Amsterdam, i.e. New York. Like, there are a lot of different factors here in the 17th century and 18th century. Um, but again, like, the pilgrims from England are the ones that we typically tie our ideological understanding to either because they won in a historical accident or because they, you know, had the best ideas and it triumphed that way. Like, whatever, you know, you perceive as the way that this all plays out, these are the ideas that become entrenched in who we are. These are the ideas that the founders tend to enshrine a um, hundred years down the road when they're writing their constitution and writing their declaration of independence and writing their justifications for these institutions. Um, this, these ideas of Locke, these ideas of like kingship being sort of, you know, a privilege granted by the public, um, these ideas that people should be able to practice their religion however they darn well please, and there shouldn't be any government, no king, no, you know, governing body dictating to them how to do it. Um, this is where we get our stubbornness about religion, our insistence that church and state be separated. Um, and a lot of, of ink has been spilt on this subject. Like, there's been a lot of question about, you know, the founders never had in mind that religious persecution or religious, uh, the separation of church and state should protect anything but Christians. Um, and that's true to some degree. Like, it's certainly just Christians arguing with Christians at this point. But, you know, I think that also underestimates the sheer power of the religious schisms that are taking place here. Like the difference between Protestantism and Catholicism, at, at least in the 17th century, is huge. Like it could not be any more vicious than any like conflict between Christians and Muslims or, you know, like the, the Japanese persecution of Christian missionaries. Like this is absolutely as violent, absolutely as vitriolic and absolutely as motivated in theology and sort of religious practice as any of these other things. Um, I think it's superficial to say that it's just Christians. Like, the difference between a Quaker and a Catholic is night and day. Um, and, you know, it's... it's. I think that the, the sort of transmission of this idea to cover religions outside Christianity, be it, you know, Wicca or Islam or Buddhism or anything, is totally within the bounds of of this idea um, but we'll come back to that later because i'm definitely anticipating myself there um, the second thing that i definitely want to talk about as far as like these ideas these philosophical origins um for what america became like we have to talk about classical education um as we transition from this baroque period this 17th century british craziness into the age of enlightenment the 18th century like the baroque being replaced by the rococo on the one hand and the neoclassical uh art style on the other this sort of very baked in like conflict between the rich and the poor um all of this ushers in this whole new sort of attitude towards learning towards knowledge um, and it was very much in the works for the last 100 and 200 years. Like, you can see the sort of, gr like, growing emphasis on science, um, on rationality, snowballing through the 16th century into the 17th and on. Um, you can see, like, 
Galileo and his persecution under the hands of the Catholic Church, giving way to Descartes and his efforts to, to sort of emphasize the role of science and rationality. You can see Bacon doing his experimentations, leading us to Newton and his radical new way of understanding the world. Um, you can see Leibniz and his calculus. You can see all these new mathematical and scientific structures giving way in the 18th century to basically a cult of reason. Um, and with this cult of reason, this age of enlightenment comes a renewed focus on studying and learning the classics, um, reading and learning ancient Greek and, and ancient Latin and sort of seeing what our forebears had to say about the subject. And this, this never went away. Like it was very much in vogue in the Renaissance, um, but it was becoming more and more popular in the, in the 17th and 18th century to the point that what had once been the purview of a couple of rich literate people at the beginning of the, the 16th century has become the province of basically everyone in the upper echelons of the middle class by the 18th. Um, like, all the kids going to grammar school are learning ancient Greek and Latin. Um, this is a shockingly well-educated society that America sort of springs out of. So what I want to emphasize is that all of these thinkers who are sort of making America what it is, the, the founders of the Constitution, the, the major players, the intellectual, philosophical um, of you know early America, these are men mostly motivated or primarily educated with this classical education in mind. Like they are very literate in the Greek and Roman histories, the Greek and Roman like poems and philosophy. Um, they've studied this stuff extensively. And this leads to some major ideas that work their way into the constitution. Like the structure of American government is based on classical Greek and Roman ideas, not just in the way that we have all those fancy white columns propping up the, the Capitol and the White House, but also like the very uh, ideas that inspired these institutions. Um, the architecture reflects the conceptual sort of groundwork here. It's no accident. Um, that the founders were so much in love with classical architecture. They were in love with classical everything. Um, so there are a couple of things from, you know, ancient and classical literature and classical thinking that I want to specifically point to here because they are things that the, the founders were very much preoccupied with um, for both good and evil. Like, you know, talking about the 18th century's perspective on, you know, like classical antiquity is itself again another one of those you know discussions that could take an entire semester in your average class like this is a fascinating area of study um, and we could go on for hours um, but what I do want to stress here are a couple of things that are consistent um, obviously one of the major contributing factors is the Athenian democracy like we the entire American experiment is to a greater or lesser degree democratic um, and this is very much you know inspired by the Athenian democracy but the founders are also very distrustful of Athenian democracy um, for good reason the Athenian democracy like flamed out really impressively um, between the whole giant mess with Alcibiades that I talk about in my in my Plato lectures and the fact that like it took a couple hundred years before the Athenians were basically like 
taken over by tyrants and, and that was it. You know, Alexander the Great sweeping through and taking over the entire world and turning it into his own empire. So much for democracy in that case. Um, but also, like, it made some legendarily bad decisions. Um, again, Alcibiades could manipulate the Athenian democracy. Pericles at least was nice about it, but, and, like, turned out to be fairly productive. But at the end of the day, the founders recognized that democracy was not to be trusted. Um, and... You know, again, you can read that as sort of like this elitism, this sort of thinking that, you know, they're better than everyone else. But they're also looking at history for their inspiration here. Um, on the one hand, you have Plato's Republic. Like, I'm sure every last one of them had read and reread that text over and over and over again. Plato is really suspicious about democracy. Like, he flat out calls it mob rule and places it on the lower half of his government structures. Um, it is... The, the advantage of mob rule and, and the sort of like rule by the people, um, whether, you know, at its best or at its worst, the, the advantage for Plato is that it's, it's relatively stable by comparison to like tyrannies and monarchies and oligarchies, um, just because, you know, you can always have a bad ruler and it just completely messes up your entire government. Um, in the case of a tyranny or a monarchy. Um, whereas, you know, if you have this sort of demos ruling the, the show, this mob rule, um, rule by the people, you can expect them to be relatively reliable. Um, like, they're, they're not gonna... They're like the ocean. They change temperature only slowly. Um, but he also emphasizes that it's still not great. Like... It, it is, at the end of the day, just the tyranny of the majority over the minority. Um, it is not just. It is not fair. Um, and what's more, the, the founders were also sort of looking at Rome especially. Um, like, as much as we today tend to sort of emphasize the accomplishments of Greek society over the accomplishments of, of Roman society, it was very much the other way around um, in both the Renaissance and uh, the Enlightenment in part because there was still this like cult of grandeur surrounding Rome. Like, I don't think it ever went away ever since the original Roman Empire itself. Like, the heck, the, the Catholic Church had been modeling itself after Roman emperors for millennia at this point. Um, like, Rome was still seen as the pinnacle of human civilization. Um, and, of course, the way that the Romans always portray themselves um, in their histories, in the, in the works that have survived, is that they were this great republic perverted by selfish, power-hungry emperors. Um, and this was absolutely bleeding into the ideas that the founders had. Like, they saw the failings of, America, of uh, Athenian democracy, and then they saw the power grab of Julius Caesar with the support of the public, and they put two and two together. Um, they recognized that, you know, government by the people was tenuous. It was fragile. It was very easy for it to sort of fall into the hands of tyrants and exploitative, charismatic leaders. Um, and, you know, history does in fact bear this out. Usually when popular movements do get started, they tend to get easily hijacked by charismatic leaders. Um, 
which you know you can see in contemporary history especially with guys like Mussolini or Stalin or or even Hitler um, sort of capitalizing on public dissent and turning it into political capital um, you could definitely make the case that Trump is doing the same thing now um, so for the founders democracy was kind of the enemy um, like they definitely wanted to keep it going because they believed in what John Locke had to say that like power comes from the people it is at the people's behest that rulers rule they couldn't write that out of their thinking it was too too firmly grounded in what they believed um, but at the same time they could limit its effects and that's why there's probably so many caveats in the Constitution. Like, we look at it now and we're like, wow, this is a really undemocratic document. Only landed citizens can vote. Um, women and black people cannot vote. Um, what's more, like, the original structures did not have in place for, like, popular election of the president or even senators. Uh, I mean, we sit around, you know, bemoaning the electoral college all the time and talking about how it's such a broken system and it doesn't represent what people want. For the founders, that was a feature, not a bug. Um, that was what they wanted. They wanted all of these layers between rulership and the public because the public is dumb and the public makes bad decisions. Um, they will, you know, be easily swayed by those charismatic tyrants. Um, so the founders very much went out of their way to sort of, like, prevent tyrants from taking control of the government. Um, like, you can see that sort of motivation all over the place. But even on a more personal note, like, if you do, in fact, read the, the founders' letters to one another or, you know, their correspondence or, or their papers, you will find them calling each other tyrants all the time. Like, Hamilton calling Jefferson a tyrant and Jefferson calling Hamilton a tyrant. Like, any rivalry that springs up amongst the founding fathers usually gets manifested in them calling each other tyrants. Like, you were allowing tyrants to take over the government. Like, this is the thing that literally everyone was afraid of. Um, to the point that it's used kind of like fake news is today. Like, you just throw it at whoever you disagree with and it sort of immediately undermines their argument. You say, well, you, your system of government will produce tyrants and the person now, like, throws up their hands. Well, nobody wants tyrants, do they? Um, but I want to stress that this is kind of bullshit. Like, they're reading these old documents from ancient Rome that are stressing, you know, the glory of the Roman Senate versus the horrible tyranny of the emperors, if only we could get back to those old times. Um, and that's kind of rooted in nonsense. Like, Livy is writing his Ab Urbe Condita, uh, you know, under the, under the rule of Emperor Augustine, um, he has yet to see that he is living in the peak of Roman society in a way. Uh, like, you could make arguments that it comes later on, but, like, the Senate really didn't produce all that much that was that impressive. Certainly the peak of Roman rule was under the, under the rule of the emperors, not under the rule of the Senate. Uh, that's what we remember, anyhow. What's more, so much of what makes Rome Rome, so much of the documents that we sort of inherit... Um, so much of the, the classical antiquity that we see is kind of propaganda in its own right. Like this, this idea um, that circulated in Rome, especially in like under the, the emperors after Augustine, the, the Caligulas and the, the Neros who everybody hated, um, 
it's very much sort of devoted to this idea that the you know things are bad now because we've gotten away from traditional roman values because the roman senate has lost its power because these evil tyrants and emperors are causing havoc we shouldn't have ever have let it get to this point um and the founders are kind of reading this stuff with a fairly uncritical eye uh, they're not sort of taking apart the the motivations behind these authors um which i think is a bit of a failing on their part like come on guys like read more critically um and uh, you know again it, it varies wildly from founder to founder each, each one has their different perspectives on how these things work as part of why you get so many disagreements among them um but at the same time like what i want to stress is that the the idea that the roman senate was the highest form of government in the world ever in all of history is absolutely propagandistic nonsense um certainly there were other societies that were every bit as productive as every bit as stable every bit as valuable the senate itself was unstable it only survived for again two three hundred years this is literally the model of government that like all of the founders like push all of their chips onto we are going to have a republic in the roman style motivated at least partially by democracy in the athenian style we're going to have the landed men of the nation decide who their electorates their their like representatives are going to be and those representatives are then going to be the ones to decide who the senators are who the president is um they're going to basically be able to shape democ or shape our government um in whatever way that they choose um so again like the the sort of takeaway messages here are the republic is the ideal form of government which they're getting that idea from elsewhere as well so i do want to like put a pin in that before i just immediately debunk and be like yes we should all have tyrants because tyrants were so much better for rome like no that that's not true um but for other reasons like there there's some accidents worked into here as well um, but the main thing that they definitely take away from from Greek government, uh, from Greek and Roman classical sort of ideas, classical philosophy, is that first, the people aren't to be trusted. Um, and second, the only thing that people can be trusted for is to remain quasi-consistent. Um, we need to avoid tyrants, in short. On the one hand, democracy is problematic because it brings about tyrants. On the other hand, we definitely don't want tyrants um so we have to sort of limit the influence of both the demos from picking tyrants and also the government from allowing tyrants these are these are kind of the two primary things um that they're kicking around that they have inherited from from their classical education um but the third thing we obviously need to talk about is enlightenment philosophy itself um, this is the the thinking that they are absolutely rooted in like this is you know what the ideas in vogue at the time um, and there are a number of different sort of directions that Enlightenment philosophy is sort of going in and working around. Um, and I don't want to, like, you know, pretend to authoritatively talk about each of the founders and, like, where they're getting their ideas. Um, so instead, I sort of want a broad picture of what the Enlightenment actually was and what it was dedicated to doing. Um, obviously, the first and foremost thing we need to talk about is that the Enlightenment called itself the Age of Reason reason is king in the 18th century 
Um, this is the most hyper-rational society that the West has ever produced. Um, it, like, like I said, it is a cult of reason. Um, and this manifests in a variety of different ways. Um, first of all, like, this is the age when science is riding at its highest. Like, the 17th century produced, you know, Isaac Newton and a bunch of other major scientists that have shaped the world. Like, the Copernican theory of the, the cosmos, this, you know, Earth going around the sun, not the sun going around the Earth, is like a giant eye-opener that is finally picking up speed. You've got Newton explaining this with his law of gravitation and, you know, his science of optics. And you've got calculus and new mathematical methods for, for understanding and quantifying the world. Um, at this point in time, science has done incredible things. The entire industrial revolution is underway because of scientific advancement, because, you know, the forces of nature have been harnessed and it is now, you know, possible to do that. You know, we used to live in our rude, brutish, ugly, short lives. Um, now science can harness and control so many of the forces that used to be dangerous and, and too powerful to understand um so the question that this the or rather the idea that many of these enlightenment thinkers are starting to run away with is well let's just have science solve all of our problems um you know newton can make science or newton can explain away the laws of the universe and we've got machines that can govern the way that you know fundamental tasks are performed we can like mechanize the business of making all sorts of things we can build factories instead of you know relying on each person to make their own clothes or shoes or whatever um why don't we have science solve our government problems too um and this is what i want to focus on primarily like the sort of enlightenment age thinking that we can use reason to fix what is broken about human beings um which means we need to talk about kind of two big ideas here. On the one hand, we have to talk about human nature. And on the other hand, we have to talk about how that affects government. Um, now, the subject of human nature has been sort of kicked around for quite a while. Um, it's definitely being discussed in the Renaissance. It's definitely something that, like, people have been talking about for a while. Um, what I do want to stress, though, like, kind of following Foucault just a little bit here, um, is the idea that human nature is a thing only since the Renaissance. Like, up until this point, the medievals were very much interested in human beings in terms of their qualities, in terms of their taxonomy, in terms of their definition, either biblically or otherwise. Um, the idea that humans have a character, something that persists, um, from generation to generation, that we behave the same way all through all remembered time, and that that force, that I, these ideas, this behavior can be harnessed, this is very much a development of the Renaissance through the Enlightenment. Um, and the Enlightenment is where it's very much at its peak. Like, you're not going to hear a whole heck of a lot about human nature in the latter part of the 19th century. Instead, we're gradually going to change to talking about the human condition. Um, not assuming that we are all given a certain fundamental similar perspective, but rather that we are shaped by our circumstances in similar ways, um, which that's the sort of crazy idea that, you know, like, again, you could spend an entire semester talking about, but we won't. We got to move. Um, what I want to stress here is sort of what contributes to this idea of human nature. 
um, what contributes to what the founders took human nature to be. Um, and obviously this is where we come back to religion. Um, like having left it behind in our discussion of classical you know, philosophy because Christianity very much wasn't a thing for a lot of that and certainly was not like the motivating force behind either the Greek or Roman political structures. Um, now it very much comes into full focus, but it is twisted. Um, we are, it has been a long time since, you know, Protestantism first took its like surprisingly bold, if tentative steps um, into, into the universe. Um, the like original Protestant protesters, the, the Puritans and the Quakers who landed on American shores, they have very much been thinned out by all sorts of other Protestants from all across Europe at this point in time. America is the happening place to be. There's a lot of, a lot of religious mainstream thinking in the colonies as well as these sort of extreme, um, ideas kicking around, um, but increasingly the elite, you know, your, your rich founders, your merchants and your, and your landowners and your estate plantation owners, um, following this classical education, following the, the latest scientific discoveries from Europe, they're increasingly being sort of indoctrinated into this idea that we usually call deism. Um, it is sort of Christianity, but with an age of reason bent to it. It is Christianity, but with all the God taken out, so to speak. Um, and I suspect that part of this comes from Hume, who was himself like thoroughly agnostic and is kind of very much the voice of this age. Um, but I imagine that it's coming from other places as well. Uh, my knowledge of like all the different voices and especially the like popular treatises that, you know, get a lot of sway is insufficient to this task. Suffice it to say that deism is this idea that, you know, God did create the world, God did create human beings, but it's sort of hands-off after the moment of creation. Um, at this point, science still hasn't come up with a decent idea, a decent explanation for how the world came into being using only naturalistic means. We're not going to see Darwin for another, you know, 70 years. We're not going to see, you know, the Big Bang Theory for over 100. Um, but this idea that nature can explain these things, that science can explain these things without the use of religion is becoming increasingly popular. Um, deism is basically the Christian perspective that says, you know, everything that works in my life works due to rational principles, not because of divine intervention. Um, God had a role in starting the universe and like winding it up and letting it go. Um, but he doesn't interact in the world since. You cannot see God's hand at work on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, this is especially important because it means that like our fates are in our own hands. Um, the Enlightenment is very much, despite sort of the, the dominance of Protestantism in the States and sort of Calvinist-motivated Protestantism at that, um, the idea of predestination is tricksy and kind of not vogue um like you can see it's it's complicated on the one hand you've got this very 18th century focus on freedom like we have free will we want our freedoms but it is freedom understood from the perspective of 
government power. Like, Hume especially stresses that, like, free will is a bogus term. It doesn't mean anything except in the context of oppression and government power. Um, you cannot be free as opposed to determinism. You cannot, like, make choices that are unmotivated by rational thought or by your urges or whatever. Um, but you can be free to pursue your deterministic ideas um, under the under the law if the law is properly, you know, working. Um, freedom is opposed to uh to like oppression not to determinism um hume and most of the enlightenment thinkers are compatibilists i suspect um as far as the whole free will determinism debate is concerned um so you know but the other side of this the the christian side of this like the calvinist motivated side of this is that this freedom is still within the parameters of fundamental human nature um, it is still within the parameters of a sinful, ugly world, a broken world, a world that, you know, is relentlessly evil, that is relentlessly corrupted by sin. And while the sort of like supernatural overtones of, you know, devils and demons tempting us at every turn are very much absent from deism um, and from the founder's thoughts, um, the idea that we are stuck in a selfish mode of perspective is first and foremost deism promises us that human beings are all alike um that they are all sort of free and should be free and are this tabula rasa emptiness but also that this tabula rasa emptiness more often than not yields selfish like self-interest um we are evil corrupt people looking for our you know best possible life like willing to you know, beg, barter, or steal our way towards happiness. Um, but at the same time, there's nothing wrong with that in some sense. Like, this is this is just the neutral state of being. Um, the challenge for Enlightenment thinkers then, and for the founders especially, is to create a system of government that nullifies this selfish impulse. The idea here that is promoted by deism, that is promoted by this Enlightenment philosophy, is that humans are fundamentally rational, they are fundamentally self-interested, and we have to somehow turn that selfishness into a corporate good. Can we harness selfishness and turn it to positive ends? Um, and this is very much the idea suggested by Rousseau and the, the philosophes, which the um, founders are very much influenced by, especially because, you know, Jefferson is spending so much time in France while these ideas are being kicked around. This idea of the social contract, um, this idea that if we can persuade people to understand that it is in their best interests to work together, they will work together. Government then is just the product of this agreement, the social contract. And this kind of brings us to this constitution. Like these are all the components that get mixed up as we form what America is to become. Um, and again, I want to stress, like I've been sort of 
doing the broad strokes approach to this and as a result i suspect i'm kind of caricaturing all of the founding fathers they all obviously have different things that they're bringing to the table good and bad um you know you have john adams and his hardcore abolitionist approach and his very like methodical legalistic approach being pitted against jefferson and his you know adherence to virginian ideals and his classical philosophy and doctrine you know this is all, there's obviously a lot of, of nuance, a lot of differences here that like I don't know about and can't go into. Um, but at the same time, these are the motivating principles that sort of like coalesce from all of them. They're informing all of the founders and they're also like being sort of like interpreted by these founders in new and different ways. Um, so with all these components, on the one hand, you have the whole 17th century British mess and this conviction that power springs from the people, not from rulers. Um, this idea that tyrants are to be avoided at all costs and that the freedoms of the public should be protected by government, even from those rulers, that government itself should be small, out of the way, and very heavily restricted and limited. Um, on the other hand, you have this classical education, again, uh, emphasizing this fear of tyranny, um, stressing that the Republican and Democratic forms of government have important virtues that can be harnessed. And even more importantly, this enlightenment idea that you can tame human nature with itself, that if you build the right machine, if you use scientific inquiry the right way, you can turn human selfishness and human evil to its own benefit. Um, obviously, this is how we get systems like the separation of powers, the bicameral house system, one primarily mo motivated by democratic ideals, the House of Representatives, which is, you know, all the representatives are voted from the, the people themselves, and the Senate on the other hand, which is modeled after the Roman Senate, a place of nobles, of, you know, intelligent people discoursing intelligently, um, headed by that most awful of things an executive branch that could definitely be exploited for tyranny and therefore must be heavily limited by the other branches of government but also which needs to be there because powerful leaders are how you know you make arrangements with other nations you need a representative for the country as a whole a single face to talk to all of that tempered with the judicial system again motivated by the 17th century and the sort of increasing power of the courts um in british sort of politics and history um, all of these systems pitted against each other. So the selfishness of any individual in the system will be pitted against the selfishness of any other individual at any other point in the system. Um, this is how you harness human nature. This is how you take evil and turn it into good. Um, now you'll notice that I have kind of gotten away from the original question here, that when West posed the question, he was very much interested in how, what is the philosophical and religious underpinnings that make America, America? Um, and you'll notice that there is a little religion hanging around the edges. Obviously, we've got this whole emphasis on religious freedom through the Puritans sort of being very defensive about it, and also through like deism as this kind of skewed, nearly atheistic Christianity. But they're very small components. And that's kind of what I want to stress here. As much as there have been so many people talking about America being founded as a Christian nation, I don't buy that. Like, all of the major factors, all of the major philosophical sort of ideas being sort of combined and played with in the founding of the Constitution and the writing of the Declaration of Independence, God is almost always a footnote. 
like sure you get that line in the declaration of independence where you know we are endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights you know on the one hand you say ah creator there is a god they believe in god but notice you know they don't even say god they say creator it's this philosophical concept in the the thomistic sense in the the aristotelian sense um in the kantian sense where like our creator endowed us with reason and yes it is up to us to make our reason sort of work towards our creator but the creator is not the personal god of most christians today it is certainly not the god of catholicism like a god who lovingly involves himself in our affairs um the founders believed that they were working with a mechanistic universe put into motion by a pretty mechanistic god um christianity is kind of not the operating principle here so the separation of church and state is certainly you know something important to the founders they definitely don't want to repeat of the 17th century with all these disorganized and disgruntled um, protestant offshoots getting mad about their rights rather they wanted to stress that the limitation of government would accomplish that um, by preventing tyrants from coming to power you would not have um, a government that is tyrannizing over the people by contrast by putting the the um the primary responsibilities of government on the states which was again a huge priority of the founders just look at the ninth and tenth amendments um they were allowing basically a like major religiously influenced state like pennsylvania being influenced by the quakers to keep doing its thing um and it's being totally okay if new jersey or new york or virginia wants to do something completely different um the idea was the federal government should be fairly loose fairly small it should definitely protect the rights of people it should prevent any injustices from happening but it should also not be able to perpetrate any injustices on its own ground um this is a far cry from what we're looking at today obviously um but again what i want to emphasize is this really isn't a religious structure that they're building you know this is this is not a theocracy not by a long shot um the em the emphasis historically where you know major players like george washington sort of slip um so help me god into the inauguration address or sort of emphasize that god is you know an important part of this 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 government this world this structure you know that's not entirely true like it's there but it's very much more instanced very much more personal very much more on a case-by-case -case basis than on a structural basis god is not written into the constitution um it's just a coincidence that many of the people who wrote the constitution also were fairly pious or devout um so the idea that the the u.s should function without a christian pub public is i think rather misleading it's possible like i don't doubt that the that the founders probably had that as an assumption in mind but it was an assumption so deeply rooted that they didn't talk about it it's certainly not explicit um the idea that like the the democracy the the demos the electorate had to be educated like as much as i think that, that is a major motivating factor for the founders it was something that they hoped would happen it's also something that they protected themselves against it's not something they assumed um they wanted everyone to be educated i'm sure that was part of their goal but you know they only limited 
power to the landed people. They didn't assume that, you know, the average unlanded person in America was going to be educated. They didn't care. That person should not be allowed to decide anyway. Um, so I guess what I'm emphasizing here is that the, the founders were less democratic than you thought, um, for sure. Like, whether you take the very, you know, pessimistic approach and say that they were all just looking after their own butts, or if you take the more optimistic approach and sort of actually look at the structure that they built, either way, democracy is pretty small. Um, it is not as huge a thing as we tend to make it out to be today. Um, but the second thing I want to emphasize is that it's not especially Christian. Um, the motivating principle, if we can, you know, sort of sum up this whole rambling nonsense and like actually answer the question that Wes posed, what is the philosophical basis um, of the constitution? It's kind of this idea that human nature is corrupt, but needs to be protected. Um, people need to be able to do what they want. They need to be free to do what they want. Uh, but they also need to be constrained from doing too much that is evil. I think one of the best descriptions I've ever actually heard about this is from, from the video game Deus Ex. Um, you have a long conversation with, a, with an AI at the end of the, the game and it sort of like describes its overarching you know, plot to you and does some pretty heavy philosophy in the process like Deus Ex is prone to do. And it stresses that government... Um, in the Enlightenment, like the, the American Constitution is an Enlightenment age machine. Um, it is designed to harness human failings and turn them into goods. It is a scientific solution to a very unscientific problem, like human greed and selfishness. Um, and I think it's an effective solution. Like, I think it's the best solution we've come up with. Like, lest I be construed as being, you know, really down on America, which is fairly in vogue at this point in time, what I want to stress is that the machine solution is a good one. Like, we solve a lot of our problems with machines. I tend to be fairly behind the Enlightenment project of hyper-rationality, of using rationality to, to sort of solve the problems that we are facing, whether scientific or, you know, human. Um, I think that the, the Constitution is a work of art in its own right. Um, I think it is a masterpiece of minimalism. Um, and I think that that's very much what the founders had in mind, that they wanted a small government with fairly loose boundaries that could, in fact, be changed as necessary, but couldn't be, like, run away with. Um, obviously, it didn't work. Like, a lot breaks down. We'll talk about that next time. Um, possibly the second of my three episodes or possibly just the second of my two, um, we shall see. But I want to stress that the American philosophy is both complicated and not as complicated as you might think. Um, it is streamlined to the point that it is a rational, philosophical, enlightenment perspective here. Um, it is harnessing human nature and using it against human vice. Um, sort of building a system that ferrets out the evil and turns it against each other for the overall good. Um, and I think that that's a good thought, even if the execution is kind of unwieldy, um, even if the execution didn't work out as hoped. 
Um, but I do want to stress that Christianity doesn't necessarily enter into it. Um, I don't think that the problems we are facing today with our government and, and the way that it works are the product of like the the Christian assumptions, you know, revisiting us after all of these years, so much as it is a problem of the insufficiently of the the insufficiency of the structure that was presented to us. In short, like the founders were not able to anticipate every possible outcome. Um, they weren't able to anticipate the party system becoming as entrenched as it was. They weren't able to anticipate the sheer like dishonorable exploitation of power that is frequently on display these days. Um, they weren't able to anticipate the hypocrisy on display. Um, and at the same time, like we changed this system in a lot of ways to defy the founders' ideas. Um, that buffer between democracy, like the the demos, the public, um, and the you know the government is no longer in place. Um, we have very much been tearing away at it, making our making our government more and more democratic over the last few hundred years. Whether successfully or unsuccessfully is another matter, but whether we should be doing that or not is a third entirely. Um, it isn't quite fair to judge contemporary American government on the standards that the founders set for us. It's not necessarily the same one that they built. Um, but anyway, that's all for the weeks to come. For now, I want to leave us with several questions for me to consider and for you to consider um, going forward. The sort of central issues that I think are extremely pertinent to understanding where we were then, where we are now, how we got here, and like how to fix it. Um, first off, we have to deal with the question of rationality. Is it in fact as good or as bad as we think? Um, the like obviously philosophical history in the several hundred years since since the Enlightenment has basically been a constant rejection of Enlightenment ideas. Rationality is not something universal. It is not something that white dudes get to decide. Um, it is not objective. Um, personally, I have reservations about both sides. Like, I think that there are problems with the Enlightenment objective ideal, but I also think that there are problems with the postmodern rejection of rationality. Um, but that's one of those issues that we need to reconcile here. We have to ask the question, is our system broken because rationality itself isn't what we thought it was? Um, so that's a huge question that we need to confront. Like, can we even govern ourselves rationally? Is rationality even a tool with which we can govern? Um, the second question we obviously have to ask is, what did happen? Like, where did, where did things go wrong? Um, why did they go wrong? Like, if the, the system on its outset doesn't show any signs of being terribly faulty, but, you know, no system ever does, um, as Hume would be quick to point out, it's only experience that teaches us. Um, it's only by putting the system through the rigor, uh, through the ringer, that we, like, begin to notice the faults, the places where it breaks down. Like, obviously, you know, nearly 250 years later, we're recognizing that there are some problems. Like, that's only natural. Um, the question is to identify what those problems are, how they came about, whether they were in the founders' original intentions or not. Like, these are important questions as well. Um, but the third thing that we definitely need to address, the third sort of underlying fundamental assumption that the founders had that would, in fact, make or break the system, um, is is their human t is their take on human nature 
accurate. Like, are we in fact the miserable, selfish bastards that they make us out to be? And are they effectively managing our miserable selfishness by, um, by creating this system? And I know that like the original gut reaction is, well, look around, people suck. Of course that they're, they're miserable and they're selfish and they're awful to each other. But I also want to like, I want to allow for the possibility and I certainly want to interrogate the possibility because it is increasingly interrogated these days um, that the system is what makes us bad. Um, like I think of, you know, I think of the axiom in education where it's like students will only accomplish what you expect of them. Um, we built a system that assumes that we suck. And then we, we basically give ourselves leaves to leave to run it. Um, is it possible that the reason why we suck as much as we do now is because the system encourages us to suck? Um, that we are evil because we live in a society that tells us that you should, in fact, be as evil as possible. The system will sort it out. That's messed up. Like... If you stop and think about it, if you stop to consider it, um, are we being encouraged by our government, by our economy, by our you know whole societal system to be selfish and evil and you know un disinterested in the plight of others around us? Um, because if we are, that's a huge failing in our government, and it is a root failing. It is something that the founders wrote in. Um, this is not like a, you know, it changed over time situation. This is, you know, here is a fundamental assumption about the world that our government is designed to rectify and, and cater to, and it's wrong. Um, so yeah, these are the three major questions that I want to sort of like ponder going forward. Is rationality all it's cracked up to be? Is it historical that something went wrong or is human nature and the founders view of human nature flawed? Um, is it not as, are we not as bad as they thought we were? Um, so thank you for hanging out as long as I've gone because this went to a whole hour and a half. I figured it was going to be long, but I wasn't exactly expecting it to go this long. Um, we'll talk next week. I, at this point, again, I'm still kind of undecided about where to go from here. The two thoughts that I have in mind are that I'm going to do, like, one lecture, just jump to the present and talk about, you know, uh, like, what is going wrong in our society now. Um, the other option is I might very well do, like, a, you know, 200-year analysis of, like, the specific places where history breaks down. Um, so if you have preferences one way or the other, feel free to email me. Um, that said, like at this point, I've only received this one question from Wes and while I am eager to answer it and obviously it will give me food for thought and food for lectures for the, at least the next week, um, I don't have any other questions on my docket. So if you are interested in me talking about some idea that you want to, you know, listen to, or if you just want my two cents on something, feel free to email me, um, my, uh, my email address and other contact information will be in the description to this lecture. So email me, ask me a question, and I will in all likelihood talk about it for as long as I get the chance to, um, and as long as you're interested in hearing about it. So in the meantime, go enjoy your week. Um, I hope that this does not turn into a giant nightmare um, over the next week. Like, again, I'm sitting here on election day, deliberately avoiding social media. Um, we'll see how it goes. Uh, so good luck, be safe. Um, and I look forward to, to having, continuing this discussion next week.